Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. Since last week's episode, one of the gospel passages for the day was the gospel dealing with Mary and Martha. And I've mentioned before that I like to read Bishop Barron's Word on Fire daily gospel reflection. And I thought he had just a great take on it, um, which kind of bucked the old, uh, like Martha's work, 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 or active, and then Mary's, like the peaceful contemplative. So he said, in the midst of this reflection, he said, the active versus contemplative reading of the story is, quote unquote, not that helpful. So we know we're we're called to be contemplative, contemplative to sit before the Lord, you know, think about him, pray to him, meditate, reflect on, ultimately contemplate the things of him and him himself. Um, but we're also called to be active, you know, things need to be done and we are called to participate in that work. And so he said, we have to dig a little deeper. He said, it's not that Mary is praised for being contemplative, but that she's chosen the one necessary thing. So Bishop Barron writes, she sits quietly at the feet of the Lord, not so much eschewing work as gathering herself, learning what she is essentially about. And he goes on to say there's a cacophony or just like, blah, like um, all this, you know, loud sounds, uh, voices calling out to you. There are a thousand influences pulling you this way and that. What's the one necessary thing? It is to listen to the voice of Jesus as he tells you of his love and as he tells you who you are. So it's not that Martha did the work that needed to be done and then Mary just sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him and magically everything that needed to be done was done, whereas Martha doesn't get to, you know, listen to Jesus. Bishop Barron is saying that, you know, we're called to be both active and contemplative, uh, but in the midst of our active moments, we're called to to listen to the voice of the Lord. And what is the voice of the Lord telling us? That he loves us and that we are made uh, in his image and likeness. We are we are loved and he has a beautiful plan for each and every one of us. So after reading this in the morning, I went to mass that day and we have this, this new young priest. He, I think he's been ordained about a year. And um, he, as I said to him afterwards, his the way that he preaches belies a really solid prayer life. I said, Father, you must be really, really committed to your prayer life and really diligent because you can just see how it comes out in your preaching. Um, and as Dan says, as he said on our family text string, he's a Dominican dressed in uh, diocesan clothing. <laughs> he's really, really just has some beautiful, profound insights. And so as he preached about the Mary and Martha gospel passage, um, first he asked the congregation, like, okay, by a show of hands, who's not worried about something? And everyone's like, you know, <laughs> like nervously laughing, looking around. Nobody's raising their hand. We're all worried about something. He said, um, you know, in, in the midst of that worry, or as we worry about things, do we turn to rely on God or do we rely on ourselves? Are we God-reliant or self-reliant? And he said a good way of gauging that is as we go about our, our tasks, our, our work, our interactions with family and friends, colleagues, neighbors, um, are we... Are we lovingly serving others? Are we, if not enjoying the task at hand, are we doing it in a spirit of, okay, I love you, and so I want to do this. I'm, I'm privileged. I'm honored to be able to work for you, um, you know, person before me whom I love. Or is it, and he's, this phrase just stuck with me, is it a joyless burden? So are we going about our day, again, whether it's work, whether it's marriage and family life, our relationships with, with friends, colleagues, neighbors, um, does it feel like a joyless burden? And he said if, if things feel like a joyless burden, then chances are good we are self-reliant. We're, we're turning to ourselves to, to figure things out, to kind of muddle through, rather than relying on God and on the grace of God, the strength and the power of God to see us through and to... Um, help us see the beauty in these tasks, the the opportunity for sanctification and salvation for ourselves, for others. And um, I just think those two phrases, self-reliance, or those 
that's a word, I guess, a hyphenated word, self-reliance, and then um, something being a joyless burden just have really kind of stuck with me throughout the week. And so I think it's it's a, a great invitation um, to consider this week each day, do we do we experience our, our tasks, our work as joyless burdens or as opportunities for loving and serving others? And I think that concept of self-reliance really goes back to to the original sin. So recall that Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're in full communion with God. They're enjoying the beauty of creation. Every tree except for one, they're able to enjoy its its fruits. And this is, there's lots of allegory um, in the, the book of Genesis, but one, one of the allegorical truths that come through, the truth that comes through this allegory, is that God has given us such richness and variety in creation. So um, we might be drawn to the study of theology or philosophy or the arts or the sciences. There's just so much um, so much beauty and depth and richness uh, available to us. And Adam and Eve are invited to, to partake of, to enjoy all of this. And then when, when they encounter the devil, uh, his words really sow doubt in Adam and Eve that that God is holding out on them. So here I have my Bible right here. Let's go to Genesis 3. What does he say? Bum, ba, da, bum. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? And you can kind of imagine him like, did God really say that? Kind of like casually, offhandedly, like, are you sure that's what God said? The woman answered the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat or even touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. So he sows this doubt like, nah, you're not going to die. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that you'll be just like him. You too will be able to see good and evil, what is right and what is wrong, and be on the level of God. God is actually holding out on you. There's more, and he doesn't want you to have it. And I think that um, that original sin, that original sentiment, that original temptation just continues to rear its ugly head and creep into our daily lives. Um, you know, oh, if I rely on God, like, will I really get it all done? Or if I rely on God, is it the most efficient way? And here's one of my personal struggles. I think like, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z kind of my way, um, then I'll just knock it out and then I'll be able to relax and enjoy as though God has me on like the treadmill of work and doesn't want me to relax and enjoy. Um, so that, that original uh, sin, I think, can lead us to self-reliance. Like God's holding out on me. He doesn't actually know best. And so I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to take care of it. And then I'll be happy. And so we pray, Lord, in um, the spirit of this this gospel about Mary and Martha and in the spirit of what, what you truly offered us in the garden, um, that we will rely on you rather than ourselves. So you have given us a rational intellect and, and a free will to know and to choose. Um, but please help us to use those goods, the goods of our humanity, um, with your love and help and by your grace so that we don't feel like we have to go it alone and figure it out on our own and as a result be anxious and worried about many things. So come, Lord Jesus, give us the grace to trust in you, to rely on you, and to allow you to lead us to so many beautiful things that that you have for us here in, in creation, presently, in this world, and in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we start with that anecdote, one, because it just came up this week and was like a cool thing to, to think about, pray about. And um, Secondly, because I think it's a good segue into today's discussion, we continue to talk about the Sixth Commandment today. We'll talk a little bit about what constitutes marriage, and then um, the catechism in today's reading selection, which is bum, ba, da, bum, paragraphs 2360 through 2400. So we'll actually wrap up the Sixth Commandment today. Um, 
and the catechism gets into discussion of fertility, contraception, other ways of conceiving children outside the sexual act. And I think um, so much of it goes back to uh, a difficulty in trusting in how God has or has ordained, arranged things, how he's created us as man and woman. Um, and uh, the, this tendency towards self-reliance, a fear of what God might be asking of us, not offering us, but asking of us or like commanding us to do. And, you know, if I do it God's way, like where will I end up and what will my life look like? So uh, again, Lord, give us the grace to be uh, reliant on you who loves us, uh, each and every one of us, even more than we love ourselves and loves, you know, our, our spouses, our children, our uh, our friends, our family, our colleagues. You love each of us more than we love ourselves and each other, and you will most perfectly what's best for us. So give us the grace, Lord, to trust in you and to trust that you actually know what's what's right and good and, uh, you know, how to how to live in that that truth and goodness. So let's start with uh, just a very uh, basic understanding of what what constitutes marriage. Um, in other, we can think about other sacraments. So, for example, baptism. Every each one of the seven sacraments has form and matter. So something spiritual and something physical, something that's often spoken and then like tangible actual things that need to be present. So for example, in the sacrament of baptism, the form of the sacrament of baptism are the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the intention of the person baptizing needs to be to baptize that person. So it's not like haphazard or accidental, but I am here baptizing you. I intend for you to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then um, we need the pouring of water. In the sacrament of confirmation, um, the person carrying out the sacrament, performing the sacrament, needs chrism. And then as he makes the sign of the cross, I uh, confirm you in, or be, excuse me, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, so those words be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit and then the matter of chrism, of anointing, as what constitutes the sacrament of confirmation. We can think of the Eucharist. So, um, you know, we see before, with our eyes the, the matter is bread and wine and the form is uh, the priest praying the prayer of, of consecration. You know, this is my re- reiterating the words of, of Christ or, or reenacting representing, bringing into the present moment once again uh, what Christ did once and for all. Uh, this is my body. This is my blood. Or, um, in the sacrament of marriage, then, what constitutes, what makes a marriage is the consent exchanged between a man and a woman. So, um, you know, we say, I mean, so many people like make their own vows now, but the, the vows of marriage, traditionally, probably up until like the last hundred years, have been, I, Rebecca, take you, Daniel, to be my husband. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And then Dan said to me, I, Daniel, take you, Rebecca, to be my wife. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. So when Dan and I exchanged our consent, we each said those words to each other before a witness or in our case, and the cases of many, many witnesses, um, a marriage bond formed. Something actually distinct from us came into existence because we exchanged that consent and we willed to be married. Um, the, so that's the, the form is the exchange of consent, the words that we said to one another, essentially saying, I give myself to you and I receive you. And then the matter, again, is the consent, the, those words spoken um, that form the marital bond, which is then consummated when a husband and wife uh, have sex. So their bodies then reiterate what they just said before a witness. So it, even if a husband and wife don't say the words, their bodies are saying to one another in uh, the sexual act, I give myself to you and I receive you. And that consummates or completes uh, marriage. So consent makes marriage. That's what makes a marriage happen or come into existence.
And then every time husband and wife have sex, they are renewing their marriage vows. So in, in the every time we receive a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments, we receive grace. So every time we receive the Eucharist, we receive grace. Every time we go to confession, we receive grace. When we are baptized, confirmed, a man receives holy orders, uh, we receive grace. Every time husband and wife have sex, they receive grace as a couple as they renew their vows. I get, again, even if they don't say a word, their bodies are saying, I give myself to you completely and I receive you completely. It's a mutual self-giving and receiving of the other. And it's this this exchange of the self, the giving of the self and the receiving of the other between husband and wife that images the Trinity. So the Trinity gives its own pattern to the family, to marriage and family life. So God the Father and God the Son love each other by giving and receiving, giving of himself, receiving the other, and being open to the the emergence of the Holy Spirit. So the the Holy Spirit is that love that comes from uh, the giving and receiving, the communion, the union of Father and Son. Uh, In being made in his image and likeness, it's, it's not perfect. I've taught this before. The analogy is not perfect or the, our understanding doesn't like directly translate in that I've had students ask over the years, like, so does that mean like God the Father and God the Son are gay? Like they're, you know, giving and receiving love. It's in making us male and female, God makes us in a way that we can, we can image this communion of persons because God is infinite and we are finite because God is creator and we are creature. Um, we don't fully understand it. We won't fully understand it uh, this side of heaven. And even, God willing, when we're in heaven, looking at the beatific vision, looking at the Trinity, God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this relationship of love, we will then spend eternity thinking about it, contemplating it, enjoying the beauty of it. So, so I, I, can't, I can't explain this perfectly, but God makes us in his image as male and female so that we too can be in an exchange of love in such a way that that relationship is, is unitive, so it unites husband and wife just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are one, are united, so you can't separate the persons of the Trinity. And we're made in his image and likeness as male and female so that we too have this, this opportunity for, for a life-givingness. So Father, son, Father and Son, as they give and receive love, it's, it's so beautiful and rich and profound that it it, it doesn't produce because there's no beginning and no end to God. There's nothing new with God. But it's we can point to the love between the Father and the Son and call it by another name, the Holy Spirit. Just like we can point to, oftentimes we can point to, the love between a husband and wife and call it by another name. Sophia is the love between Dan and me. Declan is the love between Dan and me. Peter is the love between Dan and me. Lucy is the, the love between Dan and me. So so that that union, that communion of persons is unitive, binding, uniting, um, and life-giving. And the two ends, the two meanings, the two goods of marriage can't be separated. So we can't say, you know, husband and wife come together to unite, but not to be open to life. Because if husband and wife are closed to life in the sexual act, well, then they're not truly uniting. They're not giving all of themselves, all of himself, all of herself to the other and receiving all of the other. Um, And if we, I, I don't think this is, I mean, maybe it's a propensity at times in history or in, you know, certain relationships. But there, there could be, I guess, the opposite where it's like, um, I'm open to life, but not really to uniting myself to you. So let's say, you know, I marry Dan because I want to have children, but I don't really care about him, which is not the case, babe. Don't worry. I love you. I want to be united to you. Um, but if we, if we try, if we aim for one to the exclusion of the other, well, then we rule out both. So in uniting ourselves, we are open to life. And in being open to life, that unites us. And so these are the two goods, meanings, ends of marriage, and they are inseparable. And this is where the annulment process digs into uh, a couple's wedding day and the intentions of husband and wife who exchanged consent, where, again, when husband and wife 
exchange consent, I give myself to you and I receive you, a marriage bond is formed. Um, however, if husband and wife don't actually will marriage, so I give myself to you, but I don't ha- intend to have children with you, or I give myself to you um, as long as dot, 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 and fill in any blank, as long as you're faithful to me, as long as you make enough money to provide for us, as long as you don't get sick and I have to take care of you. Um, any contingency in the mind of, of husband or wife when they exchange consent uh, has the potential to invalidate the marriage, to make it such that there's an impediment, there's a block, um, and so a marriage bond does not form. And the annulment process then basically investigates the what seems to have been consent exchanged to determine if it was truly exchanged. So on the second half of today's episode, we start with paragraph 2360 and this part of the catechism, this part of the discussion of the sixth commandment talks about the love of husband and wife. And so 2360 says, in marriage, the physical intimacy of the spouses becomes a sign and pledge of spiritual communion. Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. So um, even if a couple is not one or both uh, people, persons, are not baptized through the exchange of consent, a bond can form, and a marriage takes place. However, if the if husband and wife, if man and woman are baptized, remember that baptism is the sacrament that opens us up to all the other sacraments, opens us up to a life of grace. And so marriage between two baptized individuals what did this, the uh, catechism say? Between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. So this um, marriage becomes a sacrament where it's an opportunity for grace. 2362 says, The acts in marriage by which the intimate and chaste union of the spouses takes place are noble and honorable. The truly human performance of these acts fosters the self-giving they signify and enriches the spouse's joy and gratitude. So the truly human performance. As human beings, we are body and soul. And as human beings, we have an intellect and a free will. So as we know and choose the acts in marriage, so um, husband and wife have sex, uh, the the act, these acts foster the self-giving they signify and enrich the spouses in joy and gratitude. So, um, so sex between husband and wife um, both signifies the spiritual communion so that our bodies represent spiritually what's happening, a coming together, a uniting, and then actually affect that union, that uniting. Uh, which is really cool um, that God, you know, designed it that way. 2363 goes on to say, the spouse's union achieves the twofold end of marriage, the good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. These two meanings or values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life and compromising the goods of marriage and the future of the family. The catechism goes on to say, fecundity is a gift. An end of marriage for conjugal love naturally tends to be fruitful. A child does not come from outside as something added on to the mutual love of the spouses, but springs from the very heart of that mutual giving as its fruit and fulfillment. So the church, which is quote unquote on the side of life, teaches that it is necessary that each and every marriage act remains ordered per se to the procreation of human life. This particular doctrine, expounded on numerous occasions by the magisterium, is based on the inseparable connection established by God, which man on his own initiative may not break, between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. So the the unitive, unitive significance and the procreative significance of the sexual act, or as many will, well, maybe not many, some people will um you know, shorthand say that the two ends of marriage are, are babies and bonding. Those two ends, those two values, those two goods of marriage cannot be separated. Because again, if I, you know, unite with my spouse in a way that that strives for unity, but I hold back my fertility, well, then I'm then I'm not fully uniting myself to my spouse. I'm holding back something of myself and or I'm rejecting something of my spouse. And so we can't unite ourselves in pieces or just unite part of ourself to someone or something. Um, it's something that's that's whole and entire. It's it's all or nothing. 
And so these two ends, these two values, these two goods of marriage cannot be separated. Does that mean that every sexual act you know, must lead to a child? And the answer is no. So the catechism goes on to say in 2368, a particular aspect of this responsibility concerns the regulation of procreation. For just reasons, spouses may wish to space the births of their children. It is their duty to make certain that their desire is not motivated by selfishness, but is in conformity with the generosity appropriate to responsible parenthood. So we are called with, with each sexual act to be open to life and as a result, open to unity, open to unity, and as a result, open to life. Um, however, again, God makes us as rational beings with an intellect and a free will where we can know something and choose something, know something and not choose something. And so he invites us, he calls us to be responsible in the use of our sexuality and responsible in our parenthood. And so the the catechism will go on to detail um, – how, first of all, husband and wife are called to communicate with one another and then with God uh, the the circumstances of their life to to evaluate, you know, what's going on, what are we capable of, and how do we proceed. And if there's a reason, a grave reason, grave simply means serious, um, for a couple not to conceive or not to bring a new life into the world, then they, in communicating with each other and with God, exercise responsible parenthood. So if a couple determines with their intellect and then chooses with their free will that they have a grave reason for not welcoming more children into their marriage and family, into the world, then um, they, they exercise their, their rationality and then their understanding of their, their bodies and their fertility and um, you know, do not have sex during fertile times. So a grave reason, a serious reason to avoid pregnancy is one which would cause the couple to either – a, fail in a grave duty, so not exercise a responsibility, take care of a responsibility um, entrusted to them. Or B, could pose, it, it bringing a child into the world, if it co- poses a grave risk to the bodily health of the child or the mother, that would be a reason for not, uh, not getting pregnant, not having another child. So what does a couple do? A couple works with, lives in conformity with um, their fertility cycle. So as my former colleague and friend, Father McCabe, used to teach his junior morality class students, God fully expects married couples to make wise use of the knowledge of a woman's cycle and together the the couple's fertility. So the first step in the practice of natural family planning, understanding uh, the natural rhythms and again physiology of a woman's cycle and then what that means for the, the couple's fertility. First step is knowledge, knowledge of self and then knowledge of, of one's physiology. The second step in the practice of natural family planning is communication. So communication between husband and wife about hopes, stresses, challenges, joys, etc. Um, about their physiology, their their fertility. The third step in the practice of natural family planning, again, I'm borrowing the words of Father Kevin McCabe, the third step is power sharing. So making decisions together, never imposing one's will on another, and each being able to defer to the other. And then the fourth step in the practice of NFP, natural family planning, is periodic abstinence if necessary, either to space out births or for a serious reason. And again, that serious reason to avoid pregnancy is one which would either cause husband and or wife to fail in a grave duty. So for example, poverty can be a serious reason if it would cause the couple to fail to provide for the child. So this would be a failure of duty. Um, Let's say a, a wife with a serious health issue this would raise a, a kind of serious reason in that if she gets pregnant, uh, that would, would cause a grave risk to her health. Let's say there's the possibility in you know, a husband or wife's genetics such that this child is prone to a certain genetic disease. That would pose a grave risk to the health of the child. These are grave reasons, serious reasons to avoid having a child. And so husband and wife, after having come to understand the woman's physiology and her cycle, would abstain from having sex during fertile times and then have sex during infertile times. Okay, so the question that, that naturally follows this and question a question that my students asked you know, year after year 
Well, what's the difference then between contraception and NFP? If you're just using, isn't NFP like Catholic contraception? You're just using it to avoid having children. The, the fundamental difference is this. So with natural family planning, you have a knowledge of the woman's cycle, of the couple's fertility, and then you live in accord with that. So if you're in the mode of avoiding having children, you don't have sex during fertile times. You do have sex during infertile times. Whereas contraception, again, as human beings, we have an intellect, we have a free will. So we know and we choose two things. So we choose to have sex if we're using contraception. We choose to have sex and then we choose, secondly, to render that sex infertile. So whereas natural family planning lives in conformity with um, with the woman's cycle, with the couple's fertility, contraception renders the sexual act infertile. So paragraph 2370 says, periodic continence, that is the methods of birth regulation based on self-observation and the use of infertile periods, is in conformity with the objective criteria of morality. These methods respect the bodies of the spouses, encourage tenderness between them, and favor the education of an authentic freedom. In contrast, every action, which whether in anticipation of the conjugal act or in its accomplishment or in the development of its natural consequences, proposes, whether as an end or as a means, to render procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. So I've heard the analogy used, and again, all analogies break down at some point, of trying to lose weight by um, you know, eating more healthily or reducing one's calorie intake and exercising versus an eating disorder. So, um, so starving oneself or you know, sadly causing oneself to, to throw up, so anorexia or bulimia. So the one approach, uh, a healthy eating, dieting, exercise, works in conformity, works in conjunction with, works in a, a natural, healthy way with one's body, whereas the other, we would say, um, is an illness, you know, is, is going against uh, what's good and healthy for the body. And so with natural family planning, and there are different types of natural family planning, um, one strives for knowledge. Um, so oftentimes NFP is kind of portrayed as this, like, close your eyes and just like, yeah, like you have sex and we'll see if, like, a child comes and, you know, if not and, you know, we'll figure it out and we have all these kids and we don't know how it happened. No, true, true natural fam- – the true practice of natural family planning um, is to really study and understand and learn the woman's cycle, not just like a general feminine cycle, but the wife's very specific cycle – and then, um, you know, live in conformity with that, the, the beauty of that, whereas contraception just renders either husband or wife or both infertile, as the catechism just said, leading up to the act, during the act, or even after the act. So with something like, you know, Plan B or the abortifacient pill, rendering that, that act uh, sterile. Paragraph 2370 goes on to say, thus the innate language that expresses the total reciprocal self-giving of husband and wife is overlaid through contraception by an objectively contradictory language, namely that of not giving oneself totally to the other. So the bodies in the sexual act say, I give myself to you and I receive you, and then the use of contraception or the introduction of contraception into the sexual act then Um, says, I don't actually give myself to you or I don't actually receive you. This leads not only to a positive refusal to be open to life, but also to a falsification of the inner truth of conjugal love, which is called upon to give itself in personal totality. The difference, both anthropological, so like in terms of being a human being, and moral between contraception and recourse to the rhythm of the cycle involves in the final analysis two irreconcilable concepts of the human person and of human sexuality. So with the use of contraception, there's no need to understand the body, understand the cycle, understand the couple's fertility. And as a result, there's not a need for communication, for mutual decision-making, or what did Father McCabe say? Power sharing, power power sharing of decisions. Um, Whereas in natural family planning, there is. Both husband and wife need to be knowledgeable, need to be communicative, need to make decisions together. Um, 
in an overarching way. So are we are we able to welcome another child into our marriage and family life right now? And then also in a very specific way. So like tonight, can we make love? Because, you know, it seems like we're at the end of that phase of fertility, but not quite into infertility. And so, or the phase of infertility in the woman's cycle. And so do we want to make love specifically tonight? And so it involves more communication, um, mutual decision-making, deference to the other, uh, a willingness to listen to the other. And I, I mentioned before, Dan and I used to give these these marriage prep pre cana talks with other couples uh, for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And there was this one presenter who also happened to be a canon lawyer um, and worked in the annulment tribunal. So he was really committed to helping couples prepare for marriage because he saw at the other end so many couples who were divorcing and seeking annulment. And so he said, okay, NFP promotes, encourages, kind of forces you to communicate, make decisions together, um, defer to the other, et cetera, what, what we've just been saying. He goes, who doesn't want that in marriage in general? So not just when it comes to our sexuality, but that's going to, you know, uh, overflow into the rest of of marriage um, when it comes to other decisions and um, other discernments uh, as a couple. And so the the use of NFP, natural family planning, again, of which there are are different methods, um, blesses not just a couple's sexuality, but their marriage overall. On the flip side then, um, the catechism goes on to talk about the gift of a child and how children are truly gifts and we don't we don't deserve children. We don't have a right to children. So where, depending on where you are in your relationship, if you're married, your marriage, um, you might be uh, trying to avoid having more children, or you might be struggling to conceive and have children, and the catechism speaks to to both instances. In that vein, uh, to harken back to the beginning of our dis- our discussion, um, I'd like to clarify that if if a couple is infertile, unable to have children, that that does not invalidate a marriage. So, when man and woman come together in the sexual act and are open to life, they are achieving the ends of marriage, the unitive and the procreative values, meanings, ends, goals of marriage. If one or both are infertile or not able to bear children, um, their bodies are still open. The language of the body is openness to life and to unity. And then we don't have, we don't always have control over our ability to to have children, but that does not render the the union uh, invalid. Paragraph 2376 says, techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by the intrusion of a person other than the couple, donation of sperm or ovum, surrogate uterus, are gravely immoral. These techniques, heterologous artificial insemination and fertilization, infringe the child's rights, the right to be born of a father and mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. They betray the, sp- the spouse's right to become a father and a mother only through each other. And then 2377 goes on to talk about uh, some other techniques. So I think it's worth noting um, that first, uh, so many couples want to have a child, have children, and that is a good and beautiful and holy desire. However, that desire, because it's good and holy, does not then mean I can do whatever I want to have a child. So no one, it it sounds simple, but I think it's... um, profound and countercultural uh, to say that no one has a right to a child. So I, I do not have a right to have a child, to have children. It's not owed to me. Uh, children are a gift. And again, I cannot do anything to achieve pregnancy and, and having a child or children simply because I want a child and because that's a good a good desire. So in saying you know, I love kids, pregnancy is a good goal, therefore I can do anything in order to achieve that pregnancy and to have a child. This idea ignores the rights and humanity of the child and treats the child like a thing, like something that I'm owed um, or I deserve, just because that's, again, a good and holy desire. And when when you get down into the nitty-gritty of 
um, certain methods of in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, um, artificial insemination. Oftentimes, the child is placed in a dangerous situation. So for example, in vitro fertilization to achieve conception, bringing together uh, sperm and ovum in in vitro means in glass. Um, that, that's a hostile environment for a little embryo. And so you are, from the get-go, endangering the life of the child. The nature of in vitro fertilization provides for the intentional, ahead of time, the intentional deaths of unneeded or unused embryos. So oftentimes, um, because of the nature of IVF, because a child is conceived outside of the womb and then placed in a womb, um, the, the rate of success is, is quite low. Um, and so oftentimes in vitro methods will conceive a number of embryos or form, create a number of embryos, and then either selectively abort the unwanted children. So, um, you know, for example, I have a friend who whose mother had five embryos implanted and um, then, you know, if all five take, quote unquote, take, um, then oftentimes the parents will not want triplets, quadruplets, quintuplets, and so will selectively abort one, two, three children. Additionally and commonly, those little embryos um, are placed in frozen storage where when a couple thinks like, okay, maybe we'll want to implore, implant more later, but sadly, thousands perhaps billions, I don't, I don't know the number, of frozen embryos, then the, the little babies just die in frozen storage. When other methods are used where a little embryo is not placed in a dangerous situation in vitro, um, but a woman is artificially inseminated or a surrogate, someone is invited to carry the child for a couple. Um, the two ends of marriage, the unitive and the procreative, are separated. So a lie is introduced into the language of the body, and then the child suffers as a result of what we just read in 2376, these techniques, da-da-da-da-da, infringe the child's right to be born of a father and mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. So a child is brought into the world not in the intended loving union of husband and wife, mother and father, where the child is able to know both mother and father and, and enter the world into this, this stable relationship. A few months ago, I talked to a friend who she and her husband um, are going through in vitro, and I was offering, so I'm, I'm a big fan of NAPRO technology, which it's a form of natural family planning that stands for natural reproductive technology, and it um, provides a way of understanding the woman's fertility by charting cervical mucus. And not only does it help a couple either achieve or avoid pregnancy, but it also is an incredible diagnostic tool. So many women suffer from uh, PCOS, from endometriosis, uh, you know, suffer miscarriage after miscarriage. And NAPRO technology helps a woman understand uh, her body, understand the couple's fertility, and diagnose, you know, what, what, what's going on in her body or maybe in the couple's fertility and then work to rectify that. Whereas unfortunately methods like in vitro fertilization don't look at what's like what's wrong. Sadly, um, it's often so simple where let's say husband or wife is on a medication for hair loss or acne and it's, you know, reducing the husband's sperm count or, you know, suppressing the woman's ovulation and simply by stopping that medication, the couple is then able to conceive a child. So the, one of the sadnesses of IVF is it, it does not seek to understand the couple's fertility, the woman's body, diagnose the problem and, you know, simply just moves forward aggressively to try to conceive uh, a child. And so I was talking with a, a friend who was going through in vitro with her husband and she said, it, just in this moment of, of sadness and profundity, she said, I feel like we've given everything over to other people to do for us. So from the sexual act to the conception of the child to the carrying of the child, she said, everybody else is doing it for us. And I don't know where that leaves my husband and me. So again, it is a beautiful and good and holy desire to have a child. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can do anything and everything to try to achieve that end because that child is a human being with dignity and worth and rights and 
we cannot, we should not violate those rights simply be because, you know, we want to have a, a child or children. So if any of the topics on this episode pertain to you, uh, contraception, in vitro fertilization, sterility, annulment, um, I encourage you, I invite you to seek someone out. Uh, feel free to email me, contact at catholiclight.org, um, or seek out your parish priest, a uh, trusted friend, uh, someone who's knowledgeable on any one of these topics. And I just encourage you, if you're, if you're on the fence about, you know, like we've been using contraception and I'm kind of interested in not using it anymore, but I just don't know what that would look like for my marriage, for my family. Um, the thought that I, I think a reason, one of the reasons, maybe the reason why this topic is is so heated and so debated is because it, it really, it touches the the inner core of, of who we are and the core of our relationships. And then a very a very real consequence could potentially happen nine months later, you know, if we're um, open to the teachings of Christ. So uh, I think back to when, when Dan and I were, were first married and had Sophia. We lived in a, a two-bedroom apartment, and um, when Sophia was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine months and starting to crawl, Dan and I would look at each other in the apartment and say, like, who is this other human being who lives with us now? Like we, we have another roommate and, you know, she's a little, she's a little bit like you, a little bit like me, but she's also like so different. She's what a, what a little roommate we have now with us. So I think, um, these topics, uh, are so interesting and so beautiful, but also so many people rail against them because it's not like, you know, should I pray Lexio Divina or should I pray the rosary? <laughs> like, should I use contraception or not? That could have real, um, like, incarnational consequences for my life. And so if you're considering a change in your lifestyle and your marriage and your family, if you've been praying about this, thinking about this, um, and want to take the next step, then I encourage you to, again, email me. I could point you in the right direction or, you know, chat with a, a trusted, knowledgeable friend uh, or your parish priest. And um, in the words of, of Father Matt, this priest who I often quote and with whom I used to teach at one of the archdiocesan Catholic high schools, if you're wondering about one of the teachings of the church, put it into practice and see how it works out for you. So natural family planning, again, encourages knowledge, scientific knowledge of our bodies, our fertility. It encourages communication, mutual decision-making. Um, and so, uh, you know, it will lead to to uncharted territories, to um, no longer being self-reliant, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode, um, it, it will lead to to you know openness to God, which is like ah, like where will this lead me? It's a little terrifying, um, but we trust that God loves us and He has our best interests in mind. He's not out to get us. He's not you know holding out on us as as the devil taught Adam and Eve. Like, mm, you could actually have more without God. Uh, he does not have your best interest at heart, and, um, you know, you could have more without him. That That's not the case. That's the, the original lie. And so I encourage you to do a little digging, do a little research, and see where it leads you. Um, see if the the church's teaching lines up with with what's true and good and beautiful for for your personal life, for your marriage, for your family, for your relationships, and um, you know, bring bring it before the Lord, and He will will not lead you astray. So He He made us to be rational rational human beings with intellects, with free will. He made us to be free. He does not force us uh, to do what He wants. He He leaves that up to us, but then He He steps in and offers to walk with us each and every step of the way. And then behold the wonders that unfold. Um, you know, still with with suffering and hardship, it's as many of us know, it's not easy to raise children, but it's it's just so awesome and uh, such a gift, um, such a blessing. And on the flip side, if you if you are struggling with infertility, I really encourage you to check out Napro Technology. You can go to fertilitycare.org, and that website will will bring up a map of local. Uh, practitioners, so someone in your area um, with whom you could, you know, chat and and hopefully learn more. 
So come, Lord Jesus, give us the grace to, again, not be self-reliant, but to turn to you, to trust in you, and to allow you to lead us to the more, uh, the truth, the beauty, the goodness, the joy that you have for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we'll take a brief break and then return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 2360 through 2400. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2360 through 2400. The Love of Husband and Wife. Sexuality is ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman. In marriage, the physical intimacy of the spouses becomes a sign and pledge of spiritual communion. Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. Sexuality, by means of which man and woman give themselves to one another through the acts which are proper and exclusive to spouses, is not something simply biological but concerns the innermost being of the human person as such. It is realized in a truly human way only if it is an integral part of the love by which a man and woman commit themselves totally to one another until death. Tobias got out of bed and said to Sarah, Sister, get up and let us pray and implore our Lord that he grant us mercy and safety. So she got up and they began to pray and implore that they might be kept safe. Tobias began by saying, Blessed are you, O God of our fathers. You made Abraham, and for him you made his wife Eve, as a helper and support. From the two of them, the race of mankind has sprung. You said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him like himself. I now am taking this kinswoman of mine, not because of lust, but with sincerity. Grant that she and I may find mercy, and that we may grow old together. And they both said, Amen, Amen. Then they went to sleep for the night. The acts in marriage by which the intimate and chaste union of the spouses takes place are noble and honorable. The truly human performance of these acts fosters the self-giving they signify and enriches the spouses in joy and gratitude. Sexuality is a source of joy and pleasure. The Creator Himself established that in the generative function, spouses should experience pleasure and enjoyment of body and spirit. Therefore, the spouses do nothing evil in seeking this pleasure and enjoyment. They accept what the Creator has intended for them. At the same time, spouses should know how to keep themselves within the limits of just moderation. The spouse's union achieves the twofold end of marriage, the good of the spouses themselves and the transmission of life. These two meanings or values of marriage cannot be separated without altering the couple's spiritual life and compromising the goods of marriage and the future of the family. The conjugal love of man and woman thus stands under the twofold obligation of fidelity and fecundity. Conjugal Fidelity. The married couple forms the intimate partnership of life and love established by the Creator and governed by His laws. It is rooted in the conjugal covenant, that is, in their irrevocable personal consent. Both give themselves definitively and totally to one another. They are no no longer two. From now on, they form one flesh. The covenant they freely contracted imposes on the spouses the obligation to preserve it as unique and indissoluble. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Fidelity expresses constancy in keeping one's given word. God is faithful. The sacrament of matrimony enables man and woman to enter into Christ's fidelity for his church. Through conjugal chastity, they bear witness to this mystery before the world. St. John Chrysostom suggests that young husbands should say to their wives, I have taken you in my arms, and I love you, and I prefer you to my life itself. For the present life is nothing— and my most ardent dream is to spend it with you in such a way that we may be assured of not being separated in the life reserved for us. I place your love above all things, and nothing would be more bitter or painful to me than to be of a different mind than you. The Fecundity of Marriage Fecundity is a gift, an end of marriage, for conjugal love naturally tends to be fruitful. A child does not come from outside as something added on to the mutual love of the spouses, but springs from the very heart of that mutual giving as its fruit and fulfillment. So the Church, which is on the side of life, teaches that it is necessary that each and every marriage act remain ordered per se to the procreation of human life. This particular doctrine, expounded on numerous occasions by the Magisterium, is based on the inseparable connection established by God, which man on his own initiative may not break. 
between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. Called to give life, spouses share in the creative power and fatherhood of God. Married couples should regard it as their proper mission to transmit human life and to educate their children. They should realize that they are thereby cooperating with the love of God the Creator and are in a certain sense its interpreters. They will fulfill this duty with a sense of human and Christian responsibility. A particular aspect of this responsibility concerns the regulation of procreation. For just reasons, spouses may wish to space the births of their children. It is their duty to make certain that their desire is not motivated by selfishness, but is in conformity with the generosity appropriate to responsible parenthood. Moreover, they should conform their behavior to the objective criteria of morality. When it is a question of harmonizing married love with the responsible transmission of life, the morality of the behavior does not depend on sincere intention and evaluation of motives alone, but it must be determined by objective criteria, criteria drawn from the nature of the person's and his acts, criteria that respect the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love. This is possible only if the virtue of married chastity is practiced with sincerity of heart. By safeguarding both these essential aspects, the unitive and the procreative, the conjugal act preserves in its fullness the sense of true mutual love and its orientation towards man's exalted vocation to parenthood. Periodic continence, that is the methods of birth regulation based on self-observation and the use of infertile periods, is in conformity with the objective criteria of morality. These methods respect the bodies of the spouses, encourage tenderness between them, and favor the education of an authentic freedom. In contrast, every action which, whether in anticipation of the conjugal act, or in its accomplishment, or in the development of its natural consequences, proposes, whether as an end or as a means, to render procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. Thus, the innate language that expresses the total reciprocal self-giving of husband and wife is overlaid through contraception by an objectively contradictory language, namely that of not giving oneself totally to the other. This leads not only to a positive refusal to be open to life, but also to a falsification of the inner truth of conjugal love, which is called upon to give itself in personal totality. The difference, both anthropological and moral, between contraception and recourse to the rhythm of the cycle involves in the final analysis two irreconcilable concepts of the human person and of human sexuality. Let all be convinced that human life and the duty of transmitting it are not limited by the horizons of this life only. Their true evaluation and full significance can be understood only in reference to man's eternal destiny. The state has a responsibility for its citizens' well-being. In this capacity, it is legitimate for it to intervene to orient the demography of the population. This can be done by means of objective and respectful information, but certainly not by authoritarian, coercive measures. The state may not legitimately usurp the initiative of spouses, who have the primary responsibility for the procreation and education of their children. In this area, it is not authorized to employ means contrary to the moral law. The gift of a child. Sacred scripture and the church's traditional practice see in large families a sign of God's blessing and the parent's generosity. Couples who discover that they are sterile suffer greatly. What will you give me, asks Abraham of God, for I continue childless. And Rachel cries to her husband Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Research aimed at reducing human sterility is to be encouraged on condition that it is placed at the service of the human person, of his inalienable rights, and his true and integral good according to the design and will of God. Techniques that entail the dissociation of husband and wife by the intrusion of a person other than the couple, donation of sperm or ovum, surrogate uterus, are gravely immoral. These techniques, heterologous artificial insemination and fertilization, infringe the child's right to be born of a father and mother known to him and bound to each other by marriage. They betray the spouse's right to become a father and a mother only through each other. Techniques involving only the married couple, homologous artificial insemination and fertilization, are perhaps less reprehensible, yet remain morally unacceptable. They dissociate the sexual act from the procreative act. The act which brings the child into existence is no longer an act by which two persons give themselves to one another, but one that entrusts the life and identity of the embryo into the power of doctors and biologists and establishes the domination of technology over the origin and destiny of the human person. 
Such relationship of domination is in itself contrary to the dignity and equality that must be common to parents and children. Under the moral aspect, procreation is deprived of its proper perfection when it is not willed as the fruit of the conjugal act, that is to say of the specific act of the spouse's union. Only respect for the link between the meanings of the conjugal act and respect for the unity of the human being make possible procreation in conformity with the dignity of the person. A child is not something owed to one, but is a gift. The supreme gift of marriage is a human person. A child may not be considered a piece of property, an idea to which an alleged right to a child would lead. In this area, only the child possesses genuine rights, the right to be the fruit of the specific act of the conjugal love of his parents, and the right to be respected as a person from the moment of his conception. The gospel shows that physical sterility is not an absolute evil. Spouses who still suffer from infertility after exhausting legitimate medical procedures should unite themselves with the Lord's cross, the source of all spiritual fecundity. They can give expression to their generosity by adopting abandoned children or performing demanding services for others. Offenses against the dignity of marriage. Adultery. Adultery refers to marital infidelity. When two partners, of whom at least one is married to another party, have sexual relations, even transient ones, they commit adultery. Christ condemns even adultery of mere desire. The Sixth Commandment and the New Testament forbid adultery absolutely. The prophets denounce the gravity of adultery. They see it as an image of the sin of idolatry. Adultery is an injustice. He who commits adultery fails in his commitment. He does injury to the sign of the covenant which the marriage bond is, transgresses the rights of the other spouse, and undermines the institution of marriage by breaking the contract on which it is based. He compromises the good of human generation and the welfare of children who need their parents' stable union. Divorce. The Lord Jesus insisted on the original intention of the Creator who willed that marriage be indissoluble. He abrogates the accommodations that had slipped into the old law. Between the baptized, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than death. The separation of spouses while maintaining the marriage bond can be legitimate in certain cases provided for by canon law. If civil divorce remains the only possible way of ensuring certain legal rights, the care of the children, or the protection of inheritance, it can be tolerated and does not constitute a moral offense. Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It claims to break the contract, to which the spouses freely consented, to live with each other till death. Divorce does injury to the covenant of salvation, of which sacramental marriage is the sign. Contracting a new union, even if it is recognized by civil law, adds to the gravity of the rupture. The remarried spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery. If a husband, separated from his wife, approaches another woman, he is an adulterer because he makes that woman commit adultery. And the woman who lives with him is, is an adulteress because she has drawn another's husband to herself. Divorce is immoral also because it introduces disorder into the family and into society. This disorder brings grave harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents and often torn between them, and because of its contagious effect, which makes it truly a plague on society. It can happen that one of the spouses is the innocent victim of a divorce decreed by civil law. This spouse, therefore, has not contravened the moral law. There is a considerable difference between a spouse who has sincerely tried to be faithful to the sacrament of marriage and is unjustly abandoned, and one through his own, through his own grave fault destroys a canonically valid marriage. Other Offenses Against the Dignity of Marriage The predicament of a man who, desiring to convert to the gospel, is obliged to repudiate one or more wives with whom he has shared years of conjugal life is understandable. However, polygamy is not in accord with the moral law. Conjugal communion is radically contradicted by polygamy. This, in fact, directly negates the plan of God, which was revealed from the beginning, because it is contrary to the equal personal dignity of men and women who, in matrimony, give themselves with a love that is total and therefore unique and exclusive. The Christian who has previously lived in polygamy has a grave duty and justice to honor the obligations contracted in regard to his former wives and his children. Incest designates intimate relations between relatives or in-laws within a degree that prohibits marriage between them. St. Paul stigmatizes this especially grave offense. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, for a man is living with his father's wife. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Incest corrupts family relationships and marks a regression towards animality. Connected to incest is any sexual abuse perpetrated by adults on children or adolescents entrusted to their care. The offense is compounded by the scandalous harm done to the physical and moral integrity of the young, who will remain scarred by it all their lives, and the violation of responsibility for their upbringing. In a so-called free union, a man and a woman refuse to give juridical and public form to a liaison involving sexual intimacy. The expression free union is fallacious. What can union mean when the partners make no commitment to one another, each exhibiting a lack of trust in the other, in himself or in the future? The expression covers a number of different situations, concubinage, rejection of marriage as such, or inability to make long-term commitments. All these situations offend against the dignity of marriage. They destroy the very idea of the family. They weaken the sense of fidelity. They are contrary to the moral law. The sexual act must take place exclusively within marriage. Outside of marriage, it always constitutes a grave sin and excludes one from sacramental communion. Some today claim a right to a trial marriage, where there is an intention of getting married later. However firm the purpose of those who engage in premature sexual relations may be, the fact is that such liaisons can scarcely ensure mutual sincerity and fidelity in a relationship between a man and a woman, nor especially can they protect it from inconstancy of desires or whim. Carnal union is morally legitimate only when a definitive community of life between a man and woman has been established. Human love does not tolerate trial marriages. It demands a total and definitive gift of persons to one another. In brief, love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. By creating the human being, man and woman, God gives personal dignity equally to the one and the other. Each of them, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Christ is the model of chastity. Every baptized person is called to lead a chaste life, each according to his particular state of life. Chastity means the integration of sexuality within the person. It includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Among the sins gravely contrary to chastity are masturbation, fornication, pornography, and homosexual practices. The covenant which spouses have freely entered into entails faithful love. It imposes on them the obligation to keep their marriage indissoluble. Fecundity is a good, a gift, and an end of marriage. By giving life, spouses participate in God's fatherhood. The regulation of births represents one of the aspects of responsible fatherhood and motherhood. Legitimate intentions on the part of the spouses do not justify recourse to morally unacceptable means, for example, direct sterilization or contraception. Adultery, divorce, polygamy, and free union are grave offenses against the dignity of marriage. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.